as you in Sunday school know, my mind is not working very well. Somebody's been fiddling around with my memory chips, but uh, do pray for me. I hope I don't, don't go to babbling up here. And may the Lord bless us today as we attend to His Word. Again, I bring you so many greetings. I was just thinking about the singing Friday night, uh, the last night of the conference. We, uh, Brother Jim brought a series of messages out of Psalm 139. The passage, search me, O Lord, and try me and know my heart. And I brought a series of messages out of the kings of Israel and Judah. Some of the, sort of a few of the messages I brought in that series here a year or two ago. And at first glance, those do not seem to be very similar at all, but it was very interesting how the Lord worked all of those uh, things together and what Jim was basically bringing in the Psalm 139 of the theology of God. I was turning around and bringing the practical examples of a sovereign God breaking into human history. And so it complemented each other, our messages, very, very well, for which I'm very thankful. We had about 160, 170 people present. All uh, We met outside in the new courtyard with the, the uh, covering that was going up last summer when we were there. Uh, until it got too cold. Actually, we had a cold snap hit down there, and it's quite high. We're up around three or 4,000 feet in elevation. It gets chilly at night, a little too chilly to be sitting outside with it damp and all. So they moved us inside for the rest of the week, and I'm telling you, we were packed, absolutely crammed in this uh, the chapel area. You've been down there, know what size that is. The last night, however, they took about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes at the conclusion of the service, already 10 o'clock, but of course that's not going home time to them. They're going to sing for another half hour. And Brother Mateo got up with his guitar and led that bunch in singing some of the choruses we've come to know and love, hearing them do them over the years. And I'm telling you, what singing? 160 of these guys just singing to the top of their lungs of God's glory. I'm, it was a thrilling thing. I wish you could have heard it, but I'll bring you I bring you the report if I can't bring you anything else. Matthew the 5th chapter. Let us begin this morning by reading verse 1 through 16. Matthew 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It is thereafter good for nothing but to be cast out, and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
certainly we could devote a sermon to each one of these verses, these sayings of our Lord, but we shall this morning just attempt to have an overview, get a handle on what's going on here. Remember that we have been witnessing the Galilean ministry of our Lord, which was where Jesus spent the major part of his time in his ministry. Although he has done many, many wonderful works and miraculous things, remember that the miracles that he did were always designed, and this was really the point of last Sunday's message, those works, those miraculous works, were designed to confirm and authenticate his preaching and his teaching. In other words, the miracles, the works that he did were to confirm the truth of what he was saying. And what was it he was saying? What would you call this? That he was preaching. Well, in Matthew 4, in verse 23, we read that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's how the scriptures tag it or name this body of teaching that we see unfolded here in the Sermon on the Mount. It is called the gospel of the kingdom. It was a kingdom that had been promised to David. A kingdom that was predicted by the prophets. A kingdom that is now announced by the ministry of John the Baptist. It is that kingdom which Christ comes preaching and teaching. Now in teaching or preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Christ begins by giving us the characteristics of those that are the citizens of this kingdom. He begins by describing what the people are like who inhabit this kingdom. I just got back from Mexico. You say, well, what's life like down there? Well, I said, everybody's got black hair and dark brown skin. They all speak Spanish and they eat a lot of tortillas and beans. That's a pretty good description of the way life is in Mexico. Now, in Germany, they all have blonde hair and blue eyes and drink a lot of beer and eat wiener schnitzel or whatever they eat over there. That's what they do in Germany. In other words, you understand what I'm saying. You can give various characteristics. Now, we here in America, we're a real mix and a real mess. It'd be difficult to give us a, you know, homogenous description of Americans. But typically, kingdoms can be described and identified by these physical characteristics and features of the people that inhabit it. And so if we were to ask, well, what about this kingdom of heaven, this gospel of the kingdom? What, what, what would this kingdom be like? If I lived there, what would my neighbors look like? What, what would be the lifestyle, the characteristics of the people who live and inhabit and are citizens of this kingdom that is being proclaimed? That's what Jesus is laying before us in what we call the Beatitudes. Now, we must be clear from the very beginning, Jesus is not telling us how to get in the kingdom. Except a man be born again, he's not going to enter the kingdom. This is not the things that you better start doing in order to be admitted to the kingdom of God. This is rather the descriptions of those who are in that kingdom. This is the description of what they look like, what they act like. The word beatitudes comes from an English word, the beatific. Uh, we sometimes speak of the beatific vision of Christ. 
the Puritans used that kind of talk to speak of the, the Christians in, in glory. Seeing Christ in glory blesses us. It, it is the, it's, it's a term that speaks of blessing, as we can see from the first word in each one of these statements. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Some have said a better title in our day and time when we don't even know what the word beatific means. A better title would be the blessed attitudes. In other words, this is a description of the blessed. This is not telling you how to get blessed. It's a description of the blessed. And just as we can say that in Mexico, they look like this, they eat this, they talk like this, so we can say that in the kingdom of heaven they have these characteristics. This kingdom is populated by a people who is humble. That's what the term poor in spirit is all about. You talk of a spirited horse as one who throws his head and wants his own way. A horse that's poor in spirit is a horse that has been broken. Brokenness characterizes this kingdom. Meekness. Meekness is merely the outworking of humility. The idea of not thrusting oneself to the forefront, not trying to be first, not trying to get to the top on everybody else's back, being willing to take the low seat. As Jesus, you remember, was at that feast that day and they said soup's on. Everybody made a dash up there for the head table, wanted to be in the place of importance. And he told his disciples, no, you sit down here, you sit down in the lowest seat. And it may be that the one who's giving the feast will come and exalt you. And if he does, that's okay, but don't you exalt yourself. That's the very essence of meekness. And that's what they're like in this kingdom. They're humble and they're meek. They're lowly. They mourn over sin. You say, what sin? It doesn't matter. Whatever sin they see, they mourn over sin out there in the world. And they mourn over sin that they see within. They are they who show mercy to sinners. They are they who are pure in heart. They are they who are peacemakers. I mean, what, what do they eat and drink? Down in Mexico, it's tortillas, it's black beans. What, in Germany, it's beer and sauerkraut. What, what do they eat and drink in this kingdom? I tell you, they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. That's what they feed on. That's their meat and their drink. Do you, do you see what we're saying? This is how you would identify this people. Now, notice that Jesus is not saying that blessed are the poor in spirit... Because they'll get the kingdom too. It's not that he is saying, well, of course, we know that there's some, like scribes and Pharisees, going to be in that kingdom. And and blessed are the poor in spirit, because they'll get in on the tail end too. No, we're not to understand it in that sense alone. We are to understand that these and these alone inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they and this and so forth. This is the only group who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not that heaven will be populated by some folks like this, but everyone in it will be like this. And notice as well, he is not saying that some folks will look like one of these and some will look like another. In other words, there will be some folks in there that are humble but they're not very forgiving and they don't show mercy. And there'll be others in there who show mercy, but they're not very humble. They're pretty proud people. No, that's not what he's saying. He is giving an overview that everyone in this kingdom manifests all of these characteristics. 
They're not isolated descriptions. Uh, You see, what's being described here is merely the character of a person who's holy. A person who's righteous. A person who's godly. And I use godly in the sense of like God. Now, I know there are senses in which we will never be like God, you understand. But the godly person yearns to be like God, to think like God, to see sin like God sees it, to see right like God sees it, to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. That's the very definition of a godly person. And what is being described here is merely what a godly person is like in all respects. As respecting the world and others, he's humble and he's meek. As respecting sin, he mourns. As respects his fellow neighbor, he's a peacemaker. As respecting those that sin against him, he gives mercy. As respecting God, he's pure in heart. And we mean by that, the word pure means undivided, without mixture, without alloy. He's not two-faced. He doesn't have a divided heart when he stands before God. That he comes in a spirit of honesty and transparency before God. You see what we're saying? That this is merely the description of this righteous, godly person in all areas of his life. And so it is not that he has this, but he doesn't have this one, or he has this one, but not that one. No, this is the overall picture of what a godly person is like. Uh, I could ask Barry, for instance, would would you think that I was a godly person if I was, uh, you know, I decided to forgive you, but I'm proud and arrogant and haughty. You, You understand, I might do one of these, but really not have the other. And that would in itself disqualify me from being a godly person. Furthermore, Jesus teaches this as not only a necessity, that only these will have the kingdom. But he also teaches it as a present necessity. Now, it is utterly amazing to me how far in history and in theology, people go to try to avoid what is just so obvious. I mean, Christians down through the centuries have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and they have seen in it Jesus setting forth his will for his followers, for his disciples, and as we say here, basically describing who's going to be in that kingdom. But you would be amazed at the attempts of men using some sort of theological manipulation to get around What is the obvious? For instance, there are those who would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And they would say, well, wait a minute. This is teaching something besides salvation by grace. This is teaching that you've got to be, you know, do this and do this. As if salvation by grace alone does not bring with it a transformed life. As if, you go back to Titus, read chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Titus. And you'll see him say things like this. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and unrighteousness, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. The grace of God comes, yes, as a free gift. We haven't earned it. We haven't worked for it. But this grace comes teaching us. Teaching us not to keep living like a sinner. Teaching us to live like what's being described here in the Beatitudes. As if faith stands alone without a principle of good works. And you go on in Titus chapter 3. 
And you'll find some amazing verses in there. He says, tell them, it's not by works of righteousness which they've done. It's according to God's mercy that He saved them. By the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He has shed on us abundantly. Teach them this. Affirm it over and over and over again. If you get tired of hearing it, I'm just doing what Paul said to Titus to do. Tell them over and over, it's not by works of righteousness that they're saved. So that, in order that, they'll be careful to maintain good works. Isn't that strange? Tell them that they're not saved by works. Tell them over and over so that they'll do good works. In other words, emphasize the grace of God. But remember that that grace that comes by faith brings with it a new life. It's not just a blanket pardon. That's part of it, yes. And we rejoice in the justifying act of God for us as sinners due to the substitutionary work of our Savior. But that's not all of salvation. Salvation also brings renewal, regeneration, rebirth, transformation. Saw a new book by Max Lucado the other day. I guess it was down in Mexico. Somebody had it on their shelf down there. And it was, looked like a very intriguing title. I hadn't read the book, so I don't know if I can recommend that to you. But the title is intriguing. It says, yes, God loves you just like you are. He receives you just like you are. But He's not content to leave you that way. <laughs> and that's the point. He wants you to be, and this was the title of the book, Just Like Jesus. That's the title. See it? Probably a pretty good book. You ought to read it. He's not, you. yes, He receives us as sinners and He forgives us as sinners. For the sake of Jesus Christ, He adopts us into His family. But He is not content that we continue to live in sin. He would transform us into the very image of Jesus Himself. And these things that are being described here, and my friend, the best of us, we have them at best imperfectly. But our joy, as Terry mentioned a moment ago in his prayer, our joy will be in that day when we can do these things perfectly, when we stand in glory, made like Christ, and we never sin again. When we are transformed wholly and completely into the image of Jesus, God's Son. That's our joy. That day of glorification won't just be because we get to heaven, get to walk on streets of gold. What will thrill our souls is that we finally can worship God with a completely pure, sinless heart. Well, that's one way people have sought to avoid the clear meaning of this. Another way is through dispensationalism. In other words, they have taught that, well, you see, this is the gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom, you see, is not the church. The kingdom is something for the Jews. Uh, Really what happened, Jesus came preaching this to the Jews, and they rejected this kingdom, so God turned then to the church. The church, you see, is this big parenthesis during this age, not really what God was doing at all, it's just what He's doing now. In the meanwhile, there's this parenthesis, the church, that these things really don't pertain to. But one of these days, when we get raptured out of the picture, then God will go back to the Jews, and there'll be this kingdom, Christ will come and reign on earth in Israel over this millennial kingdom. So in other words, you really don't have to worry about this. This is just for the Jews in that kingdom age. Well, I've just got one thing to say about that. Baloney. Number one, 
where in the world do you get the idea that we somehow are not in the kingdom? I mean, the book of Colossians, where Paul writes to a bunch of Gentiles that have been converted to Christ, he says to them, God has translated you from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Not waiting for the millennium. This is it. Well, that's just one verse. I guess we could go on and quote many, many others. It's interesting that Paul, at the very end of his ministry, as it's described to us in the book of Acts, the last two verses of Acts, finds Paul under house arrest in Rome, preaching the kingdom. Why is he preaching the kingdom? Doesn't Paul know that that's not for this age? That's for those Jews in the millennium? Now, you can try to dehorn this any way you want. Now, you say, oh, they really don't believe that. Well, I brought along this morning... This wonderful book called uh, Millions Disappear, Fact or Fiction. You'll see this as a photocopy. I was telling Sunday school class, this guy sent these out to anybody and everybody that was a preacher in the United States a few years back. I didn't get one. <laughs> David got one. And uh, he wouldn't give me his. I mean, this is, a char- this is a classic. But I did make a photocopy of it for several reasons. It's because it's, it's right up there. I, I said I recommend this book exactly as I would recommend the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. It's right up there with that one. (laughs) This guy describes the rapture. He describes, by the way, he has an interesting slant. He's describing when the rapture happens. In the next instant, a blinding flash goes off like lightning hitting the next room. The explosion of an atom bomb that would blind you if you look at it. There's There's a rushing sound, all of this. You rush in to check the children. This is what I like. All that remains is a pile of clothes and a crimson pool of blood. Now, why would you have a pool of blood? Well, they say because Jesus said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, You see me, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as I have. See, flesh and bones can inherit the kingdom, but not flesh and blood. So they leave the blood by. Anyway, the real beauty of this book is... The appendix, entitled, What to Do If You Miss the Rapture. I kept this for this, just for this alone. I mean, you know, it it pays to have this. What to do if, in case you miss the rapture. Number one, don't get excited. (laughs) Folks, trust me, if you miss the rapture, you go ahead and get excited. I mean, go ahead. You have my permission. Number two, number two, start working your way to heaven. If the Lord comes and you remain behind, then start working like a madman to get into heaven because you're going to have to. You've entered a period of time called the Great Tribulation, and the plan of salvation in the Tribulation is faith in Jesus Christ plus your good works. Now, dispensationalists, and by the way, the leading thinkers in dispensationalism would reject all this. But the man in the pew, this is generally the message that he's hearing from dispensational teachers that implies, yes, there is more than one way into heaven. There's the way of faith and through grace and so forth, and then there's... This way, described in the Sermon on the Mount. So, you see, if you don't want to have to go to all this trouble right here, then you need to get in this easy way. But what I'm saying is that, first of all, there is no easy way. There's a straight and it's a narrow gate. 
And that yes, it is by grace. If you get to heaven, my friend, you can just count on this. It'll be by God's mercy and His mercy alone. It will be of no righteousness that you have produced. If you get to glory, it'll be in spite of you, not because of you. But grace is more than just some favor that says, yes, you can go to heaven and overlook your sins. Grace is something that comes and permeates our lives. It, it changes our lives. It's, it's, it's not just the, the justifying work of God in heaven before the court of God declares us not guilty, but it's the Spirit of God comes into our lives and begins to actually transform us and change us and produce this lifestyle. Now, if you're like this, be sure to know it's not because you did this. It's because God did this. It's because the God who begun a good work in you is faithful to continue it and to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the same God who called you when you were in your sins and forgave you for the sake of Jesus, His Son, is now at work in you to make you and transform you into the image of His Son. I say this, then, is a present necessity. Not just a necessity for some folks that miss the rapture. It's a present necessity. And you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? How do you know that? Notice in the Beatitudes itself, one of the things that are said here towards the end in verse 10 is, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. My friend, how could this apply to a Jew in the, in the millennial age with Christ reigning on the earth, as they say, ruling the world with a rod of iron, all nations brought underneath his rule, underneath his government? Who's going to be the persecutor in the millennial age, if there is one, as they would describe? Who are these folks throwing rocks? I, I was listening to, uh, there's some problems down in the church of Usila, the Usila Valley down in the upper Chinanteca region, and a division sort of in the church between some of the new converts, the younger people in the church, and some of the older folks. And the older folks got their feelings ruffled because there's been sort of some things going on the younger guys are doing and not consulting them. And Dan was telling me a little bit about the history. He says, you have to understand that some of these older people in that church were people who were stoned. He says, now I'm not talking about stoned to death, but they were hit by rocks. They were pelted by rocks. Their houses in the night would just suddenly come alive with rocks pelting the walls and the roofs of these little huts where they're living. I mean, these are people who went through trial and tribulation and stood for the gospel in a time of great persecution in that city. So in other words, in his view, they're due a little respect. <laughs> you may not agree with their ideas, and they may be some old fogies, but you need to at least not completely ignore them. They are people who hazarded their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the way Jesus is describing that wherever this kingdom is, notice you, you get in the kingdom now. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom you're getting it. You're getting in it now, but you're getting in it in a hostile situation, a hostile environment. This isn't the millennium when everyone is bowing the knee to Jesus, whether they like it or not. This sounds a whole lot like our age when people are throwing those rocks at you for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
And then another reason why it's clear that it's speaking of our age is the next two little things, sometimes called the similitudes, there in verses 13 through 16, where Jesus describes those in this kingdom as two things, salt and light. Now, salt today, to us, about the only time we use it is to season our food or maybe sprinkle it on the driveway when it freezes, get rid of the ice. That's, that's about it. Keep in mind, in the culture in which Jesus is saying these things, the major use of salt wasn't to season or to thaw ice. It was for preservation. Keep in mind that in a culture without refrigeration, without the means of keeping meat without it going bad, salt becomes the major item that is used in to keep corruption, rottenness, from setting in. So you get the picture that Jesus is speaking of you and I as being salt, that is, which stands against the corrupting influence that is all around us. Again, back in the millennial age, this doesn't, or if there is one, this doesn't quite fit the circumstances. But it sure speaks of our world, does it not? A world that, as it were, is going to hell in a handbasket, getting more rotten to the core every day. But the Christian is sent into it to stand in opposition, to oppose the rotten, the corruption of this world. And not only that, but he is described as being light. Well, why would we be described as light? Because the world, as John says, lieth in darkness. He said, well, no wonder that the world then, we come into a world that wishes to stay in the dark. You are bringing the knowledge of God into a world that would just as soon ignore and suppress the knowledge of God, as Paul describes in Romans 1. You are bringing the truth of God's Word into a world that wants nothing to do with that. In fact, the Old Testament prophets spoke in their day. The prophets, he says, prophesy lies. And the people love to have it so. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, let me give you a little New Testament. Paul writes Timothy and said, in the last days, men are going to have itching ears. They're going to want to hear anything but this. And they'll find them false teachers that'll come along and scratch that itch for them. Now, you get the picture then. Your salt... In a world that it wants to go bad, you are light into a world that wants to stay in the dark. You begin to see where these persecutions come from? After all, you think about it, wouldn't you like to live in a kingdom like this? Where you didn't have to lock your doors at night. We didn't have to worry about, you know, I remember reading a fellow saying, uh, hey, you know, you're in the country. When you go to church, you lock your doors so that uh, your neighbor won't fill your uh, seat with all the vegetables they got out of their garden. <laughs> in other words, wouldn't you like to live in a situation like this? Wouldn't you think everybody would? I mean, isn't this ideal? Isn't it? It is heaven. This is what's being described. This is the kingdom of heaven, folks. This is what the people are like. This is what your neighbor is going to be like what you're going to be like if you're there. Wouldn't you think everybody would like this? Wouldn't the worst wicked man in the world, wouldn't he want a kingdom of people like this? For what logical reason would you persecute folks that live like this? Well, why are they being persecuted? 
Verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You remember that parable again? The man went away into a far country to receive a kingdom. And while he was gone, his citizens said, We will not have this man reign over us. Ah, there's the rub. I saw a cartoon once. Thought it was funny. This guy, there's a train going by, blocking the street. And there's this one guy sitting in one little car over here on this side of the train. What he doesn't see is on the other side of the thing, there's a one-way street. And there are cars from sidewalk to sidewalk backed up for a mile. And so he's sitting there in his little car waiting on the train to go by. And what you realize, as soon as that train clears that track, he's standing there looking at all these other cars coming his way. He is headed the wrong way up a one-way street. You know, well, he's got a rough road to hoe. My friend, you and I are called to walk not the wrong way, but the right way. Down a, down a way, down a path where everybody else is headed in the opposite direction. They love darkness, you're light. They love rottenness and corruption, you're salt. They love the rule of Satan, you bow the knee to another king, King Jesus. My folks, there's bound to be some collisions along the way. One of my... Um, greatest difficulties is in understanding how I suffer so little for the kingdom of Christ. It worries me. It bothers me. I'm not wanting tribulation. We're to pray, lead us not into temptation. Not, Lord, here I am. Send me in. (laughs) I'm ready. Bring it on. No, no. I know my own heart too well to say, Lord, I'm ready for anything you can send my way. Scares me to death. But at the same time, it bothers me. When I read that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer tribulation. When I read the Apostle Paul telling the folks in Asia that it is through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And he had the stone marks on his head where he'd just been freshly stoned and left for dead to prove it. Bothers me that I suffer so little for the cause of Christ. We may get our opportunity, you understand. And that may be my own shallowness and compromise and lukewarmness that is to explain that. But it does bother me. And notice that Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out there and and make as few waves as you can. I'm going to send you out there and be a light, all right, but you might want to put something over that light. You know, you might want to hide that so you won't be quite so obvious. What what does he say? No, you don't put the light under the bushel. You hold it up on the candlestick. Uh, In other words, he is telling us, rather than being compromised, we are to be as salty and as bright as it is possible for us to be. Now, let me address something that's not found here in the Beatitudes, and it may be bothering some of you. Why don't we see a description of faith here somewhere? Why why do we not find the people in this kingdom, if it is by faith that we're saved, why don't we see them described as being people of faith? Blessed are the believers. 
You know, something like that. That would seem rather obvious. But I'm saying to you that in fact we do see faith. And we see it in the future tense of this word shall. Now you'll notice the very first of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a present reality. We enter it now. But the blessings, the full blessing of this kingdom, we do not realize now. Blessed are the poor, the, the meek, or they that, I'll get it right here in a minute. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Notice the future tense here. The fact is, is that they who inherit this kingdom have embraced the lifestyle of heaven. They have embraced this lifestyle. But the full blessing of it remains future. Uh, let, me, let me give you the example of the meek. When we say that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What, what do we mean? But the meek man in this life looks like he's being left behind. Right? The meek man who says, you go first. You go on. You, you take the high seat. You get the best lot. You get the choice. He, he seemed, you know, we, we have this philosophy, you know, you only go around once and you've got to grab for all the gusto. And if you don't grab it, somebody else will. And so all the world is out here biting and scratching and clawing, trying to get to the top. Whereas the meat man is sort of standing back and saying, go ahead. Go on. Now, why does he do that? What Jesus is saying is in the end, it's that fellow that let those others go first. He's going to get it. He's going to inherit the very earth that the others are clawing and scratching to get a hold of. He's going to wind up with it. Now, he doesn't have it now, you see, but he will get it then. And therein lies the principle of faith. His eyes are upon not what the present situation is. His eyes are upon the promised situation. Faith being the substance of things not seen. He walks by another kind of sight. He walks by the eye of faith. He sees treasures in heaven that no one else sees. He sees a day coming when he'll be rewarded for his service to his master. No one else sees that. He sees the present reign of Jesus Christ that no one else sees. He's been born again. He sees the kingdom of heaven. And so while the world grabs and scratches and claws for the present blessing, he is content. Let him have it. Knowing that his reward is coming in that future day. There's the faith. They have betted, betted, <laughs> wagered, might be better, better English. This, these people, they've wagered. They've bet their life. You remember the old TV game show, You Bet Your Life? Well, these have. They have bet their life. On the veracity of God. On the truthfulness of His promises. And what, they, what floats their boat is there's a day coming when the King they now serve is going to reappear. And they shall reign with Him in glory. Now question. If this is the description of those in the kingdom. If it's the necessary description. This is not op op optional. It's necessary. And if this is a present 
necessity. It's, it's not something you're going to get when you die. That's the great misnomer of our day, that people can live like the devil, and they're going to die, and then tra- be transformed into this being that just loves nothing better, sit up in the clouds playing a harp, singing praise to God. That death will transform us from being the wicked, sinful thing that we are into this holy creature. My friend, that's not the case. If you enter the kingdom of heaven, you'll enter it now. And the difference between entering the kingdom now and that future kingdom of heaven is not a difference in kind. It's simply a difference in degree. There you will have completely and fully what you have started to enjoy now. You want to go to heaven? I suggest you go now. We're not talking about making up a load, you know, one of these days when you die. You enter now. You taste of heaven now. You have the foretaste. You have the earnest. And these various words that we use in our language to speak of a down payment or a little portion of the full thing. We have the earnest now. And we yearn for the completion. So, if this is the case... I just wondered if, is this a description of you? How would you describe you? And uh, not stopping there, how would others? Now, I'm not talking about the world. The world, you know, always finds something wrong with a Christian. I'm talking about... How would your fellow brothers, how would the saints view you? Would they use these words to describe you? You know, sometimes people have a very misguided image of their own lives. They think they're the most wonderful people ever off the face of the earth when, in fact, they're nothing but a devil in the flesh. You know, we oftentimes have people very much confused about their own situation. But how would others speak of you? Would they use these words to characterize your life? And then in the final analysis, the third question really doesn't matter what I would think or what my neighbor would think. Would God use these terms? The God who knows me in and out. Would he use these words to describe my life, my character? Well, folks, he better... He better... These folks are going to get the kingdom. That's what they look like. That's how they act. The lifestyle of heaven had better be seen in you now. Oh, I know it won't be in perfection. Oh, far from it. It'll be incomplete. It'll be spotty, immature. But oh, my friend, it had better be there. You'll not get it at death. At death, you may lose something. But you're not going to gain anything. You're going to get it. You're going to get it now. You notice Satan counterfeits the works of God. Saw it at Moses when Moses went to the magicians of Pharaoh. They threw down his rod and they threw down theirs. And he made the frogs come. They made the frogs come. And then when he got to that turning lie, you know, the dust into lice. They said to Pharaoh, this is no trick. This is the finger of God. 
they were able to duplicate the very works of God up to a point. But when it came to bringing life out of nothing, they couldn't do it. Satan can and does counterfeit the Christian life. He'll make you the best churchgoer. This church has ever seen. He'll make you the biggest giver. This You'll sing prettier and louder than everybody else. You'll be here every time the door opens. Now, I'm not talking about those things in a bad way. You understand those are things the saints do, but they are outward things. He will make you the very best Christian, quote, unquote, that you can be outwardly. But you know what Satan cannot counterfeit? He can't counterfeit this. This character. This love of what is lowly and meek and humble. He can't do that. He can't produce this. Can't fake this. This is why this is the real marks of a Christian. The real fruit. Now Jesus called this gospel. You know what gospel means? Good news. Good news. Is this good news to you today? It's good news to the meek. The poor in spirit to hear that they're the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's good news to the meek to learn they're going to inherit the earth. It's, it's good news to the pure in heart that they're going to see God. But it's not good news to anybody else. It's good news to you. Let's pray. Father, may we look honestly at this description. Lord, these things search us and try us. Your Word is like a sword pierces within, lays us open, exposes us, exposes not just what's outward, but even the inward thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, may we be honest and open and naked before You with whom we have to do. May we not be so foolish as to think we can hide. We can fool You. We can put on a cloak. The skin-deep covering of Christianity and be thought real and genuine. Lord, may we ask ourselves some very penetrating questions. If this is the description of the saints, if this is the description of those that inherit this kingdom, is it the description of us? And Lord, if not, there is only one thing we can do. We can't work this up. We can't preach it down. We can only turn to the one who reigns on a throne, who is able to transform us. And make us into something we're not. As the leopard cannot change his spots, neither can we change our nature. But, O oh, Father, You are all-powerful. You are able to send Your Spirit and renew us and recreate us in the image of Jesus, Your Son. Lord, we would urge and seek to impress everyone here if they are outside this kingdom. To flee to Christ. 
to seize, Father, the moment and to lay siege to the kingdom that they might enter. I pray, Father, for those who are in this kingdom. And yet, Father, we exhibit the fruits of it so faultily and so shoddily in our day. Our fruitfulness is our greatest failure and sorrow of how little we look like Jesus. But, oh, Father, thank you that what we now hunger and thirst for are things that once we had no desire for. The fact that we want to be like Christ, that that is the driving impetus of our life once we remember a time when that was the farthest thing from our minds. And thank you, Father, that you have promised to those who hunger and thirst that you'll give them what it is they're hungering for. So, Father, may we, with a clear mind and a honest heart today, face the question, what is it for which we hunger in this life? Lord, we come to celebrate what your Son did for us. May we never lose sight of it. May we never forget. May we remember that it is his sacrifice that is the foundation of this kingdom. And though we be a little flock, it is our Father's good pleasure to give unto us the kingdom. Thank you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.